Hi, I'm Kay Jabelli. I am Frieza Bastoon, and this is Monopoly Attack. So you might have seen some headlines recently about the first big tech breakup ordered by a competition authority. That was at the end of 2021, when the UK's Competition and Markets Authority, or CMA, required Facebook, now called Meta, to sell off Giphy, which it had originally acquired in May 2020. Now the question is, should big tech be bracing for a wave of such breakups? Well, not exactly, because this was a merger control procedure, and that differs significantly from some other cases that are based on monopolization statutes. And the most famous case here is the one ongoing in the US where the FTC wants to break off Instagram and WhatsApp from Facebook. But that's a bit of a different story because this one is situated in merger enforcement. Merger enforcement, generally, we want to have quick, uh, clear procedures. That's why those work with these revenue-based thresholds and very strict deadlines. Uh, Kay, maybe you can talk a bit more about that, especially from a business perspective. Yeah, merger control enforcement is this particular area of antitrust that is ex-ante preventing companies from acquiring other companies. It says that before you can change the structure of the market, in effect, by completely removing a competitor, by making them part of your company, part of the same firm or undertaking, that you need to get approval from the government. So unlike the rules on anti-competitive agreements and on abuse or monopolization, the enforcement comes before anything happens in the market. And in order to do that, companies need legal certainty to know which deals are going to be reviewed. So competition authorities around the world have established these economic thresholds, these jurisdictional thresholds on when they will intervene in cases. They set these thresholds so that companies know that if they meet these particular targets of uh, revenue, of presence, activity in a jurisdiction, then they're liable to that jurisdiction's merger control authority to get permission for any deal that they might want to make that will impact that jurisdiction. Right. For example, at the EU level, um, that leads to a lot of cases every year. And some mergers are blocked based on those cases uh, that are divided in different phases. Um, not too many deals get blocked, which may mean that companies sort of know which deals to to implement, to put up for approval by the commission authorities. I think the, the commission blocked 10 deals in the past decade. It's about one per year. Um, the last one was only a week or so ago, um, a shipbuilding merger. Well, that's also clear from uh, the, the strategy behind that is clear from what Vestager says about mergers. Uh, it's not necessarily a success to prohibit those mergers. Success is that a market remains open and contestable, which is the end goal of merger procedures, as you've just mentioned. Yeah, and I think that that's an uh, important consideration because companies who are going to take the risk of making an acquisition, they want to know whether that is likely to be approved or not, so that they're not just inadvertently putting a lot of resources and energy and executive time and uh, you know, putting employees under uncertainty, not knowing you know, what is going to be the future of the company uh, if they are going to ultimately be blocked. So the theories of harm and the jurisdictional thresholds are relatively well established around the world for merger control. 
And it's only a handful of deals where the parties can't remedy the competition concerns that ultimately end up getting blocked. So short of completely prohibiting a transaction, a competition authority can accept commitments from the parties, remedies to the concerns that have been identified in that investigation of the merger. So recently, there was a big one with Google and Fitbit, where they committed to providing certain ongoing access uh, to uh, technology and uh, agreed not to engage in uh, certain behaviors that were considered uh, potentially causing a increase in market power or a reduction in competition in the advertising market. Right. There is some debate these days about whether merger enforcement uh, is setting the right balance, whether it has been too lax. Uh, the proponents of that view would point to the, the limited amount of mergers actually being blocked. Uh, the opponents would point to the fact that, well, companies uh, know that a lot of deals don't even have a chance to get through and don't even... Um, well, conclude those deals so that actually merger enforcement is effective. It's a bit of a difficult debate, but maybe we should move on to the UK regime where uh, this Giphy deal has been blocked. Um, is there anything sort of particular about the UK regime, apart, of course, from the fact that uh, it is no longer part of the EU since Brexit? What have they done since? Yeah, I think that there's a lot of uh, unique aspects happening right now. We can look broadly at the economy and say that there has been more concentration and that potentially this is causing increases in prices or you know other negative economic effects so that overall merger control has been a little bit more lax and there's also been a lot of criticism over the last few years that merger authorities have not done a good job of analyzing tech mergers Going back to previous cases that even the UK authorities have looked at, like Facebook, Instagram that you mentioned. But what has happened lately is that the tech sector has gotten a lot more scrutiny in merger control. And in particular, the UK authority post-Brexit, uh, meaning that now its investigations are not subsumed within the EU-wide review, but are independent from the European Commission, they have come out particularly aggressive on the merger control front. Unlike the EU, the CMA in the past two years has taken a very interventionist approach. In 2020, it frustrated 10 mergers, and in 2019, it was eight. So four transactions were blocked, uh, and another six were abandoned after the CMA raised antitrust concerns in 2020. And the possibility is a deal will get approved without conditions. The deal will get approved only with certain commitments. Or the parties will just say, look, these commitments that the authority is asking from us to address the concern is too much of a price to pay. It kind of defeats the whole purpose of the transaction. We won't get the benefits of the deal, uh, you know, the efficiencies. And sometimes they're anti-competitive benefits as well <laughs> that they won't get. Um, so they will decide that they don't want to accept those commitments or make those divestments. Normally, those kind of commitments are going to involve the elimination of the overlap, so to say, which means wherever the two companies are competing head to head, uh, reduction in the structure of competition that would result from them combining needs to be counterbalanced by instead of combining that overlap needs to be split off. And so that there remains the same number of competitors after the transaction as there were before. 
All right, so definitely a strong uptick in cases that are under greater scrutiny. Some get remedies, some are blocked. And this this sort of cuts across sectors. It's not only tech, um, it can be sneaker stores, airline solutions. But I think it stems from a certain regret, indeed, of being having been too lax in the past. And I think that regret is most uh, most focused when it comes to this tech sector. Um, in this one speech, the um, head of the CMA, so Andrea Caselli, mentioned that the 400 acquisitions made by the largest digital firms between 2008 and 2018, none were blocked. Some of the biggest ones did go, uh, did get subject to review by the CMA, and in particular that Facebook Instagram one in 2012. But then they sort of not entirely missed, but at least did not fully appreciate this potential competition angle, uh, which is an area that they have tried to to rectify since. Uh, For one, they've updated their merger guidelines. First, they had this economic consultancy, Lear, do an exposed assessment of their past merger control decisions. And there, the conclusion was also that they did miss some stuff in Facebook, Instagram. And those new guidelines now focus a lot more on this potential competition. So it's not only taking a current competitor away of the market that is a concern for merger control, but also taking a player off the market that could have grown into a competitor, which, of course, is always difficult to see. You're looking at the future and... What is that saying? Um, predictions are hard, especially if they're about the future. So um, a sort of stricter view, or at least trying to change uh, their scope in those investigations. But I think one important thing that deserves discussion first is how the CMA even get to review all those deals. Because, for example, the EU didn't have any competence to review Facebook, Instagram, but uh, CMA did. And that's because it works with a slightly different test or They have an additional test, not only the revenue-based one, but also one based on the share of supply. So if the merger leads to a share of supply that is greater than 25% in this um, market or product or service, then that also gives the CMA jurisdiction. And especially with these tech services where there's not always significant revenue, especially from the targets, um, that share of supply test gives them sort of jurisdiction over a lot more deals than you would have with a revenue test. Yeah, indeed. And the share of supply test is supposed to capture deals that have an effect on the jurisdiction, you know, like all jurisdictional thresholds. But the CMA has really kind of stretched it in a way to the point where a lot of these recent cases, the parties have been saying, look, we don't even have revenues in the UK and have challenged the CMA's uh, jurisdiction in court. And the court has actually upheld this very broad interpretation where even if you don't have actual revenues, they can look at it uh, from a different perspective and find a sufficient local nexus to impact the jurisdiction. For example, in the Roche-Spark case, they said that there was a share of supply of specialist researchers employed by the parties. So they were even just looking at a very narrow, narrow segment of where there is an overlap, even if that's not on the sort of share of supply to customers uh, perspective. So effectively, now that the UK is no longer uh, under the European Union's uh, jurisdiction, they can use this share of supply test to grab any kind of deal. Whereas before, you know, they were getting deals that the EU couldn't see because they were below the revenue thresholds that the EU has. Now they can look at 
deals that the EU can see as well as those that go below those thresholds. So they have a lot of deals on their plate. And as we can see, they're not afraid to block them or identify concerns that need to be remedied. And Facebook Giphy is one of those. Right. Let's get to Facebook Giphy. Now, Facebook, of course, I should say meta now, but well, let's stick to Facebook. That company needs no introduction. Giphy is probably familiar to most people that use some online messaging service. Uh, they provide a library of GIFs, so that are those moving images, often humoristic, that sort of, well, sort of a substitute for words, really. Um, a sort of more specific emoji to just send in a message. Um, there was some research and decision that on certain media, certain messaging services, GIFs were 25% of messages, or at least included in 25% of messages. So I think, especially among young people, uh, they're sort of a, really a medium of communication. And so like I said in the introduction, Facebook acquired this library or search engine of GIFs in 2020. Now, uh, the CMA got jurisdiction over that transaction, again, to this share of supply test that we just mentioned. There was no revenue at all from Jiffy in the UK, um, none at all outside of the US, because it's only in the US that they made some revenue from this paid alignment program that we'll speak more to. But um, that doesn't really matter. They do have the share of supply of over 25% for these GIFs or GIF libraries. So the CMA got to look at it. Now, what did they focus on in their assessment, Kay? So it's kind of hard, as you mentioned earlier on, to predict the future. One of the things that competition authorities will do is rely a lot on internal documents from the parties to see you know, what are they actually thinking about the market, about competition in the space, about potential competitive threats, and about the importance and value of the target or, you know, other alternative uh, competitors. So these kind of internal documents have been referenced a lot in the acquisition of Instagram case uh, that uh, you were talking about and uh, that's happening in the U.S. And uh, they've used it here as well. Now, there is a little bit of a downside to that. And I've worked in-house. So speaking from some experience, the business people who are trying to get a deal off the ground will say that that deal is going to be great. It's going to make the company much stronger. It's going to have all these benefits and you know, cause problems for all these competitors. And that's why internally, you know, this deal should be prioritized and become the focus of future investment and executive time and energy. Now, those documents have a particular objective and intent, and they might not paint a completely a neutral view of the deal or the potential of the deal in question. So there is a lot of room there for competition authorities to find stuff that they can use to build a case that might not be entirely objective and picture of the competitive landscape. Right. Yeah, I think, again, Facebook, Instagram serves as a good example here. There was a lot of emails that only surfaced later that the CMA didn't look at at the time that said, you know, Facebook wants to kill Instagram at its inception, this sort of big language about, you know, the competitive specifics. Also, some more sober assessments, which are, are the more relevant ones, you know, where they actually look at the competitive landscape and see how this merger fits into it. Um, I think another problem with internal documents is that by now, um, executives are a bit more careful, especially in big tech companies, about how they communicate in emails. Uh, I remember a while ago, there was an 
this list of terms that should be avoided at uh, at all costs at Google was circulated uh, in the press. Um, you know, killing competition, et cetera, is not something you should say in emails anymore. So perhaps that also sort of limits any value from internal documents uh, when there's greater caution because some people seized on that kind of wording before. I agree completely. But on the other hand, you know, the complete absence of documents is also relevant. So despite the voluminous information requests that the uh, CMA had sent to the parties, they admit in their decision that they had not seen any internal meta documents that describe Giphy in the way that the CMA ultimately described Giphy in their decision. And I think that's the heart of the substantive assessment here, that this assessment of whether Giphy is going to be this giant competitor to Facebook in the future and whether this transaction is going to snuff out this potential competition or whether the story is something different and maybe there isn't this sort of realistic probability of this anti-competitive outcome happening. Yeah, and before getting into the specifics of this market, it might be interesting to think a bit about Facebook's strategy um, behind this acquisition. Uh, there was a bit of that in the internal documents, but I think the main one was that Facebook wanted to take control of this strategic input. I mean, these GIF libraries, and there's there's only two GIF libraries. One is Tenor, that is owned by Google, and this one, Giphy, was still independent. And so Facebook was concerned that it wouldn't have a long-term supply of GIFs, essentially, for its various messaging services. So with this transaction, it would uh, secure, secure that supply um, I think that's the, the main reason uh, losing that access would be would put it in a difficult position or we were even specific estimates of what that would cost, for example, Instagram, if they didn't have a uh, access to gifts anymore. And I think that really ties into a lot of the other submissions that Facebook was making about why Giphy was even up for sale to begin with. Right. They weren't really generating any revenue. They didn't really have those other investments coming in to allow them to continue their business operations. You know, they, they weren't making money. So there's only so long that you can burn investors' money without new investor money coming in. And there was a risk that Giphy would go out of business. And so there's this concept in merger control of the failing firm defense. Now, I, I don't think Facebook was going to make that argument as such, but that's relevant to what the counterfactual is. As in, you know, in the world without this transaction, what would competition look like? Would Giphy continue in operation and make that Facebook could rely on the supply of GIF services from Giphy in its broader competition against other players in the media space? Or was there a vulnerability there that due to Giphy's poor financial circumstances and, you know, it was for sale for a long time. It wasn't get a lot of investor interest even after uh, Facebook showed interest. Uh, and so that's the difficult job that a competition authority has is to try to predict uh, what the landscape would look like and whether or not to block a transaction. Is it going to make the market better or is it going to make the market worse for competition and for consumers? And I think the CMA's findings on the competitiveness of Giphy are quite interesting. Yeah, completely agree that the counterfactual is crucial in, in any competition law case, really. Um, and, and it's often a difficult one. Again, it's forward-looking, of course, or looking to a reality that doesn't really exist. And especially in the tech space, where with a lot of companies, well, initially there is no revenue, there's only 
uh, venture capital investment. The idea is that somehow along the way, they'll figure out a business model or get acquired. And, you know, that will be the business model, just being part of a larger platform. I guess here the business model was moving along quite slowly. They had this paid alignment. So essentially big companies or any company that wish could advertise within GIFs um, so or GIFs. I'm already messing that up. But uh, say Pepsi or Coke um, wanted to do some advertising. So I guess they could buy placement in GIF searches for soda. But that was only rolled out in the U.S. so far, although there were plans for international expansion. But I suppose it wasn't really clear whether that would make the company viable in the long term or different views on that. Yeah, I think it's a fundamentally different kind of advertising compared to the kind of display advertising that is core to Facebook's business model. So with these kind of paid alignment services, you're not really getting any of the benefits of programmatic advertising, not getting any benefits of the personalization uh, because you're not able to get that kind of data. You're not able to get the advertisers, the targeting that they want to reach the customized audience that they want. You're not able to see if that leads to any purchases. You know, there's no direct response uh, measurement to those things. It's more like broadcast advertising than it is like other forms of display advertising. There's not a click through, right? You don't click on the GIF to go to the shop. So it's very different. But the CMA says that it's a close substitute for display advertising services of the type offered by Facebook. And they accept, you know, Giphy's very optimistic forecast that they were going to have a almost tenfold increase in their uh, number of impressions and users, despite the fact that most of Giphy's users were coming through Facebook services. Potentially, it had already kind of reached the upper bounds of where it would get to. But the view of, again, looking at these internal documents, you can find very rosy and optimistic forecasts of what Giphy would be able to accomplish that the CMA has then relied upon to say that they are playing a very important role in constraining Facebook in the display advertising uh, market. Right. This gets to the, the competitive assessment, like what would be the effects of the merger? And then on a horizontal level, you could see potential future competition between Facebook and Giphy because they're built in advertising, specifically display advertising, although a bit of a different kind at present, as you pointed out. And the CMA's main theory, I think, was that indeed Giphy could grow into this threat, could competitively constrain Facebook, for example, its advertising prices, um, if it continued to grow in the future. This potential competition argument. Yeah, I think that, you know, going back to what you were saying earlier, I think there's shades of wanting to redo the Facebook-Instagram deal, but I don't think Giphy is Instagram. You know, I think they're <laughs> dramatically different services with, with different potentials. And I think they're giving this transaction quite a hard time, but maybe not entirely on the basis of just this transaction. Right. No, I think the history does play into it. And I mean, on top of that, these potential competition cases will always be difficult. Um, obviously, the competitive potential of Instagram wasn't really recognized at the time. But there does seem to be a difference between the two, as you've mentioned. Then again, you know, there were enough uh, commentators at the time that were saying uh, Instagram was never going to grow into something. They made that mistake then. I think there's a real concern to prevent that mistake now. But 
yeah, there might be some overcorrection here. But that's not the only theory of harm, right? So there's the horizontal theory of harm of direct competition between the two. There's also another theory of harm that's a vertical theory of harm, uh, which is sort of less often used as a basis to prohibit a transaction, but uh, is part of the case here and part of the decision. And that's one of input foreclosure in a way, and goes back to this concept of Facebook's rationale, wanting security of supply, but it's kind of the inverse of that, right? Yeah, exactly. This input foreclosure is the concern that Facebook, after the acquisition, would cut off access to this GIF library for competitors. So the concern that it has of losing supply, well, it could make that happen after the acquisition for other social networks, messaging services, and so on. And CMA said and recognized that those GIFs are an important feature of social media platforms. You sort of need access to at least one of those databases, and the two main ones being Tenor, owned by Google, and Giphy, independent, or part of Facebook. Um, in that assessment, I mean, two terms are crucial. Does it have the ability to foreclose? And secondly, does it have the incentive? Now, the ability, perhaps, since there's only two of them, and it's uncertain what Google intends to do with Tenor, if it has not committed to keeping that one open. But... The incentive is, I think, the more important part. What would be the benefit from Facebook cutting off access to Giphy? And what would be its costs? Um, so the cost is perhaps the clearest one. It would Facebook would lose uh, the benefits to Giphy and having a wide pool of users. And there's some networks effects in this market. So more users lead to more GIFs, uh, which leads to a better library. Uh, if it would be the only one making use of that library, that would be diminished. What could be the potential benefits? That is, well, reducing those engaging features, uh, these GIF options on rival social media networks, um, seeing this as sort of a necessary input for those networks to develop and grow. And so making competition with the Facebook platform more difficult. Yeah, I don't know how realistic that one is. I mean, I, I view social media as a pretty competitive space. I know the CMA has kind of said, oh, this is, you know, entrenched market positions. But if you look these days, you know, TikTok is the most popular website, according to Cloudflare recently in 2021 for the year, they have more time spent than Facebook these days uh, by users. And so I think the social media space is a lot more robust and dynamic. And if Facebook were to kind of try to uh, degrade rivals' access to Giphy, that would just mean that their other alternatives would pop up. Um, you mentioned Tenor, which is there and already licensed to, to third parties as well. So I think it would end up being more bad for Facebook than it would uh, benefit them. But, you know, that's a question uh, for the future, which could potentially be remedied by a commitment. Um, so I would differ a bit in my assessment of the competitiveness of the social media space. Uh, I don't think it's all too competitive, but if there's a vertical concern, that could at least be remedied with an access remedy. And these are these are classic and vertical cases. A commitment, a monitored commitment, uh, from the acquirer here, Facebook, to continue to give access to its gift library to other social media companies or really anyone who asks. But that wasn't accepted by the CMA, was it? Now, I, I wonder, you know, given this somewhat uh, contentious perception of, of Facebook, was there a trust issue here? Or, you know, is it just generally these days, especially competition authorities are less inclined to accept behavioral remedies? I think in the US, 
DOJ head Cantor recently said as much that uh, you know they would favor structural remedies over behavioral commitments because they're difficult to monitor. Uh, you know they entail additional oversight and they don't have that same kind of structural change on the market. The CMA, along with a couple of other competition authorities last year, also issued a statement to the same effect that they would prefer structural remedies over behavioral remedies. And I think that combined with the horizontal concerns that the CMA identified was part of their justification to prohibit the transaction overall, not accept commitments in this one. But that's not exactly the end of the story, is it? Uh, no, it is not. So Facebook is um, determined to make this acquisition go through, which is why it appealed to the decision to the Competition Appeals Tribunal, I think just at the end of December or start of January. Uh, so we'll have to wait for that decision and see if this rather aggressive approach by the CMA, um, especially when it comes to potential competition, which has it's not really been valued to this extent before, will be confirmed by the court. Indeed, and whether this very interventionist approach into uh, potential rivals, regardless of how small they are or how much revenue they make, also has a knock-on effect on investment, on venture capital interest in the UK post-Brexit, and you know what does that do to the tech ecosystem in the UK? I think it'll be interesting to see how this all plays out, and surely at least the Court of Appeals judgment is going to be providing us some fodder for a future episode. Definitely. Okay, it's been a pleasure. Talk to you next time. As always, thanks, Frizo. Thanks, everyone who's listening.